0: Do you have trouble sleeping? If so, then you're among 40 million other Americans. Sleeping disorders are becoming an increasing problem in America. People are exhausted by the busy pace of life, yet finding rest and true rest seems elusive. Studies show that people sleep 20% less today than they did 100 years ago, and 30% of the population suffers from some level of insomnia. People can't Sleep. Their bodies want to rest, but their minds won't let them. Their minds are racing. And what is it that's causing these overactive minds? Well, typically, trouble, stress, anxiety, fear, worry. Have you ever had trouble in life that kept you up at night? I would take a wager that you have. It's common to us all. Trouble comes for us all. It afflicts us all. Maybe your company is going through some downsizing. And rumors come that the next week they'll be laying some people off. And you you need this job, you depend on this job. And and you're probably gonna have a pretty sleepless week kept up waiting, wondering, running through the what ifs in your mind. For many such people, their thoughts are like untamed horses, they just run wild and they can't be brought under control. And for a lot of people, their only recourse is drugs. I'm talking sleeping pills. 10 million Americans now regularly depend on sleeping pills just to get a good night's rest. These sleeping aids chemically force their minds to shut down so that their bodies can finally get some rest. But sleeping pills are not always a magic bullet. They're really just a band-aid approach because they don't address the real cause of sleeplessness. They neither resolve one's trouble in life nor one's wrong response to such trouble in life. And furthermore, there's a real danger of addiction or dependency on sleeping pills. The brain can become accustomed to the effects, making recovery harder, and people are known to go through rebound insomnia when they try and get off of sleeping pills. The troubling thing is, since 90% of people who experience depression also experience insomnia, they're usually taken like a cocktail of drugs, including painkillers and antidepressants, and it can be a, a weird and dangerous mixture It just all leaves you wondering and hoping that there's got to be a better way, right? Let's hope there's, there's a better way. Now, it's true. You can't always control your circumstances in life that pressure comes, sickness comes, trials come. That's what life is like in a fallen world. But you can control and you're called to control your response, in particular, your mind, your thinking, your reaction to all the trouble in life. God calls you to be sober-minded, to speak truth to your mind, to control your thoughts, not to be controlled by your thoughts. Doing so leads to a different level of peace, and it leads to rest, true rest. Understand for this reason, Christians should be the best sleepers around. I mean, we should sleep easy every night. Now, I'm not talking about those who have you know, real medical conditions, obviously, but when it comes to just trouble in life, look, we, we have our share, but our God is greater. We have a God who, despite what we're going through, he's still in control. He's still on the throne. He's still reigning and ruling. We're still in his hands, and, and knowing that, that you're still safe in his hands should be enough to help you to rest easy. You need to rest your head on the pillow of his promises and cover your feet with the blanket of his character and just go to bed, sleep easy, rest easy. Your ability to do this is both a test and a reflection of your faith. But be reassured to know at least that it is possible that there is a better way, a better response to life's adversities there is a way to peace and rest, even in trials. It comes by a complete confidence in God. And we're going to learn more about this way, this way of peace and rest, this morning from Psalm chapter 3. So why don't you take your Bibles now and open up to Psalm 3. Psalm chapter 3. You know, we recently finished preaching through Philippians, and in the interim... I've been wanting to preach through some psalms, so you'll see a few more psalms come down the road here. This morning, though, Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is a special psalm. It's the first Davidic psalm in the book of Psalms. And historically, it's been known as a morning psalm, a psalm that has been used for morning worship or devotion in conjunction with Psalm 4, which is known as an evening psalm. That's because Psalm 3, verse 5 speaks up Uh, speaks of waking up after the Lord, sustaining rest. And Psalm chapter 4, verse 8, speaks of going to bed uh, with the Lord's strength and security. So it actually seems likely that whoever organized Israel's Psalter together probably put Psalm 3, Psalm 4 near the beginning to serve as these morning and evening calls to worship. Psalm 3 was almost surely also set to music. It comes in stanza form. It's the first psalm where we encounter that word selah, which, although we don't 100% know uh, for sure what it meant back in the day, most likely referred to a musical pause or or a break. Psalm 3 is also special, being the first psalm that relates to a specific incident in David's life. If you look at the inscription before the psalm, it says, A psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Now, some believe these inscriptions are, are actually part of the inspired text. But even if they're not, there's no reason to doubt that this is the circumstances behind Psalm 3. We'll, we'll see that and in, in, to come, how it really fits the psalm. But you know, to say Psalm 3 reflects a time of trouble in David's life would be an understatement. David was forced to flee Jerusalem when his own son staged a coup and led a rebellion against him And was trying to kill him. I mean, really, you you know the background behind the psalm. And Hollywood itself could not come up with so compelling a storyline. So you have the mighty King David find himself middle-aged and exiled. He's lost everything. The nation has turned on him. And his own son is trying to kill him. That's called trouble. David knew trouble. And how would you respond to that? Or let me put it this way. Let's say that you knew that on the following night, tomorrow, all all the armies of the nation of Israel would be gathered together against you and the few people you have with you. And all those soldiers have just one goal, and that's to kill you, just you. There's going to be a battle where that this rebellion will be decided who will win. So how would you sleep that night? You probably need a sleeping pill, maybe like a, a horse tranquilizer to, to go to sleep that night. I mean, but but David actually lets us know through his reflections in this psalm that that night, it seems, he got a perfect night's sleep, perfect peace, perfect rest. If, if that's the case, it leads us to, to question, how can that be? It's not because David was great. It's because his God was great. And as David just came to the end of himself, he placed his complete, and I mean complete, hope and confidence in God. So he found peace and he found rest. And this this is the better way. David, through his experience, leads us in, in the better way to respond to life's trials, the way of peace. Let's learn about it. Let's read Psalm 3 now to begin. Psalm 3, verse 1. He says, "O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Salah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You've shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Salah. This is a short yet powerful and helpful and convicting psalm. It contains all the reminders one would want to start the day, to start the morning. You know, especially this season, the time right before Christmas, the time where we are to be remembering Christ, the Prince of Peace, who came to the world to bring peace. Yet for a lot of people, this is like the least peaceful time of year. It's hectic, it's stressful. And even then, at the same time, all throughout the year, people's lives are filled with trouble and and peace-stealing trials. So even if we've heard this lesson before, we could use another lesson on peace, the place of peace. And that's what we're going to find this morning. Kings David King David's, rather, uh, his personal reflections in adversity shows us this place of peace. This is a timeless place, so even though our circumstances may differ, the lesson is the same. And with this in mind, let's be reminded of the place of peace and rest in the midst of trials and troubles. That's what we want to discover, the place of peace and rest in the midst of trials and troubles. From Psalm 3, we're going to see David's predicament. David's peace, and then David's prayer. David's predicament, his peace, and his prayer. Now, I have to say real quick, as a side note, I'm stealing this outline from George Zemeck's book, Roadmap for the Psalms. But I don't feel too bad because a little-known secret, if you've got a MacArthur study Bible, he didn't actually write the notes for Psalms. George Zemeck wrote the notes and the outlines for the book of Psalms. So it's got to be pretty good, right? I feel safe stealing it if he, he made it into the study Bible. So let's begin then with number one, David's predicament. David's predicament. First things first, let's just go through the psalm and, and understand what was going on in David's experience, and then we can see how that relates to our lives today. Back again to verse one. He says, O oh Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. It's a lot. David open up, opens up this psalm with lament. He begins by just pouring out his heart to Yahweh, to his God, and the subject of his lament is his adversaries, in particular their number. It's just it's growing. More and more adversaries are rising up against him each and every day. It's kind of like you're driving, you see a bird in the sky, and then a few more following after, and then a few more show up on the scene, and then there's a dozen. And then all of a sudden, there's like a a flock of a 100 birds just in the sky, taking over the sky. And likewise, David's adversaries, they just kept growing and and flocking together. And everyone, it feels like, is assembling against him. How fickle the people were. David was the king, and he was a good king. He led Israel to peace and prosperity. Yeah, how quickly the mind of the people can turn. I think we certainly know this today as our culture is characterized by what you might call groupthink, where people don't really think for themselves, they just kind of go with the flow, go with the crowd, the path of least resistance, the safe bet. It's almost like people were saying, well, Absalom is king now, David's been run out, everyone's everyone's siding up with Absalom now, we should probably join him. And so they did. No one was stopping to ask, you know, is this the right thing to do? They think it's safe to go with the majority. They think it's safe to oppose David. But, you know, if you know your biblical history, you should know that it's it's not a safe bet to oppose David in battle. King David had proven himself time and time again as a fierce warrior and a master tactician. You had really better know what you're doing if you're going to oppose him in battle. Even as a youth, he he proved himself by defeating the lion and the bear, not to mention Goliath. He had a sterling record of stunning military conquest, so you better know what you're doing. Now, that being said, look at verse 2. Notice, though, what were his adversaries claiming? They said, many are are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him in God. David's enemies were, were basically saying that his God had abandoned him. The people knew that David was favored by the Lord, led by the Ark of the Covenant. They knew God was out there fighting his battles. But now they believe that God had forsaken David. Therefore, it's safe to attack him. It's safe to turn on him. Just like God had abandoned Saul, david David's time's up. His list of transgressions was long. He had done enough bad things, and though surely they're figuring he, he, he's done. God has had enough with David. It's time for him to go. So this coup against David is justified. Now, speaking of a coup, there are several military overtones in Psalm 3 that really seemingly confirm the circumstances behind this. But this is Absalom's rebellion. Foes and enemies are mentioned in verse 1 and verse 7. The people are pictured as an army deployed against David in verse 6. But God is his shield in verse 3 and and he seeks victory in verse 7. I want to take it one step further, though, before we carry on going through Psalm 3, I want us to spend a little bit of time just to be reminded of of that actual historical background to the psalm. So let's just do this. Keep a a finger or bookmark in Psalm 3 and turn over now to 2 Samuel chapter 15. 2 Samuel 15. As you're turning, I'll, I'll bring you up to speed. David, as you know, he was a good and a godly and a mighty king. He was a man after God's own heart, and he was chosen by God as king. God unilaterally blessed him and promised him and his seed an everlasting kingdom. But David was not perfect. He was a sinner like you and I. Notable for David was his fall into adultery with Bathsheba and bloodshed with Uriah. Now, thankfully, David genuinely repented of his sins and God amazingly forgave him of the guilt of his sin. But there would still be earthly consequences. God, though forgiving, he reserves the right to discipline and chastise his children that they might learn the seriousness of sin. And so in consequence, the child born to Bathsheba would die. A son of David would die for David's sin. And in addition, God told David in 2 Samuel 12 verse 11 that God was going to raise up evil against him from his own household. David's household would no longer be characterized by peace, but bloodshed in consequence of his sin. David would reap what he sowed in the earthly manner of speaking. So you fast forward several years and this, this all starts to come true. That's what 2 Samuel chapters 13 and 14 tell us about. We learn about strife in David's household. Specifically, David had a son named Absalom who had a sister named Tamar. And Tamar was taken advantage of, if you know what I mean, by another son of David from a different mother named Amnon. So naturally, Absalom was outraged that his sister was taken advantage of by Amnon, and he vowed revenge. And one day he he got his revenge where he he rose up, and he struck down and killed Amnon, his his brother. He then fled the kingdom for three years. Eventually, though, David recalled Absalom and allowed him to come back to Jerusalem, showed him mercy. But the king would not let Absalom see his face. He kept him sequestered in Jerusalem for another two years. Finally, though, David was reconciled to his son Absalom. But it doesn't take a genius to recognize that that all this time, bitterness was growing in Absalom's heart. Because you see, Absalom, he believed he was righteous in striking down his brother who had defiled his sister. Israel's law actually supported the death penalty for such acts of adultery. But Absalom here, he is being made to suffer by his father David for five years now. Who, remember, David himself was an adulterer. And so, a root of bitterness had taken hold of Absalom's heart. And by chapter 15, it's, it's full grown. It's ready to, to come out, and it does. Absalom is now completely embittered against his father David, and he vows to take the throne. So here's how he does it. It's summarizing a little bit here. Each day, Absalom would station himself outside the city gates of Jerusalem. That's a strategic location as all traffic flowing into the city had to pass through the gates. There, Absalom would intercept all the people who were coming into the city to to seek judgment before King David. Remember, back then, the king also served as like the Supreme Court. But Absalom would intercept them. He would hear their case, and then he would say this, verse 3 of 2 Samuel 15. He would say to them, See, your, your claims are good and right, but no man listens to you on the part of the king. Moreover, Absalom would say, Oh, that one would appoint me judge in the land. Then every man who has any suit or case could come to me and I would give him justice. I trust you can see what Absalom is doing here. He's stealing away the hearts of the people by sowing doubt and discord in his father's rule. And he, telling the people, basically, if only I were king, if only Absalom were king, you know, things would be better. There would be justice in the land. And over time... It worked. He had, he had done this, we get the impression, for years actually. And over time, he had stolen away enough hearts that he had sufficient sufo- support to make a move, to, to take power from David. And the time, the time came. And so verse 10 of chapter 15. It says, But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Absalom had gone on a trip to Hebron, and there he set himself up as the new king of Israel over all Israel with plenty of support. Verse 12 says the conspiracy was strong for the people increased continually with Absalom. Remember back in Psalm 3, David's adversaries were were growing and increasing continually. Same picture. This is how it happened. Just Absalom declared he was king. More people joined, and More and more just went with the flow. Now, when David caught wind of this rebellion, he knew things were bad. So much so that he immediately decided he had to flee Jerusalem with his people because he knew that Absalom's next move would be to march on Jerusalem with some forces and take him out and really take over the throne. So out to the wilderness they went. David, plus about 600 people, or men at least, departed from Jerusalem, crossed the Kidron brook down at the bottom of of the city of David, ascended the Mount of Olives on their way out of town, out toward the wilderness. It was at this time, they're on the Mount of Olives, that that Zadok, the high priest, and all the Levites, they came out to David with the Ark of the Covenant. They were going to go with him. But David said, no, he turned them back. Now, partly he wanted them to be his spies in town. But also listen to what he said. Look down at verse 25 of chapter 15. The king said to Zadok, return the ark of God to the city. If I find favor in the sight of the Lord, then he will bring me back again and show me both it and his habitation. But if he should say thus, I have no delight in you. Behold, here I am. Let him do to me as seems good to him. See here, David, in this trial, He's truly resigning himself to the will of God, thinking, you know, if this is how it's meant for him to go out, well, so be it. He knew he deserved nothing good from God. He did not deserve deliverance in this case to to keep living. He knew he had sinned and, and should be judged. David was so humbled by his circumstances that he even tolerated slander and mockery. Look down now to chapter 16, verse 5. This is really an interesting episode. You have David and his his little cohort. They're fleeing Jerusalem. They're on their way to the wilderness. And as David is fleeing, verse 5, this man named Shimei comes out, and he's cursing David continually. Verse 6 says he's even throwing stones at David, who's still the king, by the way. Then verse 7, look at verse 7 of chapter 16 says, thus Shimei said when he cursed, get out, get out, you man of bloodshed, you worthless fellow. The Lord has returned upon you all the bloodshed of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son Absalom. And behold, you are taken in your own evil for you are a man of bloodshed. You see, it seems clear that Shimei was... Probably a supporter of King Saul, you know, the guy that David replaced. It looks like Shimei was holding on to his own bitterness as well this whole time. But now that David was on his way out, Shimei let it fly, let his his bitterness fly. But notice the content of his cursing. In verse 8, Shimei invokes God, basically saying to David, like, this is God's doing. This is God's judgment on you. He's, He's sending you out. God has raised up Absalom in your place because he's through with you. He's returning the kingdom to another's hands, to Absalom's hands. This kind of reflect and reminisce of Psalm chapter 3, verse 2, where David was saying of his adversaries that they were saying there's no deliverance for him in God. God, God's abandoned him. God has forsaken him. That's what Shimei was doing. That's what he was saying, that basically your your God is, is done with you. He's... He's he's forgetting you, he's sending you out, he's cursing you, just like he had done to Saul. Now, later down in verse 9, one of David's mighty men who were with him wanted to go over and cut off Shimei's head for cursing the king. That's what it says. But David, again, prevented him. And we get another window into David's heart. Look at verse 10 of chapter 16. It says, The king said, What have I to do with you, O sons of Zeruah? If he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? Verse 12, Perhaps the Lord will look upon my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. You can turn back to Psalm 3 now. You know, we find during this trial, this whole trial with these windows into David's heart, that he never felt entitled. He knew he was not entitled to physical peace and prosperity. There was no promise that David would escape this rebellion alive. This could be how he was meant to go out. The danger was very real. Likewise, today that the trials and the troubles we face, the danger, it's often very real and we have no promise of physical deliverance. Not that every time you go through something bad, it, it'll all just be okay. We have no such promise in, a, in an earthly sense. Trouble is like the rain. at seasons of drought, but then there's seasons of monsoon. And sometimes trouble comes, your life gets flooded, and there will be no rescue. In fact, for all of us, eventually some trouble in life will rise up and claim our lives. And so it goes for all of us, life in a fallen world. At this point it just it just sounds depressing, and it is depressing if your only hope is is in this world. It's not going to last very long. But David wasn't done, and he wasn't down and out because his hope was not in this world, but in the Lord. There may not be earthly deliverance, but David knew there would be ultimate deliverance. David knew that despite his sin and even the earthly consequences, nevertheless, God was still going to to faithfully deliver him over to that everlasting kingdom, that God would not abandon him or forsake his soul. David knew in his conscience that because of his sins, he had given his enemies some reason to slander, to accuse him. David was not without sin, but he also knew that God had forgiven him the guilt of his iniquity, He also knew that that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. Further, David was God's anointed one and that God could not nor would not betray his promises to David. God is bound by his own word. So David knew that whatever happened, even if he were to die, his soul was still secure secure in God's hands, that God would deliver him to that kingdom. See, these are the, the truths that we likewise need to remember in our time of trial, in our hour of adversity, that despite what's going on in your life, God God is still good, and he's still for us. He's not against us. He's not against you. If you're his child, he's for you. Maybe you feel guilt over your past sins, and part of you feels like you don't deserve to experience peace because of what you've done. And maybe it's true that, you know, some of the calamity in your life, you may have brought on yourself by your your misdeeds. But it's not true that God has abandoned you or forsaken you. If you know Christ, if you're in Christ by faith, you've been adopted into his family, and that's, that's permanent. That's a permanent adoption. And he never abandons or forsakes his children. It's not possible. Others may say, that God has abandoned that person, speaking of you. You may have that thought in your mind, that temptation, I think God has done with me. But these are simply not true. You have to rather fill your mind with what is true, and that's what David helps us with. God is, is still with you if you're his child. And David, in the end, he met the challenges to his faith by confessing his faith. And we need to do the same. And this leads us to number two, David's peace. From David's predicament to, secondly, now, David's peace. Let's go back to Psalm 3 and start covering some ground here. Look at verse 3 in Psalm 3. He says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Salah. It's in this next stanza that David relates to us that despite his adversity, he still found peace in even a restful night's sleep. And he shows us here the way of peace. It doesn't come by listening to the lies of the world. Rather, it comes by verse three, recalling divine truth and verse four, calling on divine aid. God's character and God's promises were, were the pillow that David rested his head on, we need to do the same. Let's take a closer look at these verses, verse 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me. This is, in verse 3, an emphatic contrast. The focus of verses 1 and 2 was David's increasing enemies, his growing trials. But peace is not found by focusing your attention on your adversity. That's the wrong response. The right response is to shift your focus away from your troubles, onto God, to set your sights on God. If you gaze too long on your trouble, it's going to grow in your mind to gigantic proportions. It's going to feel insurmountable. Maybe you had some unexpected medical issues, and it's all resolved now, but months later, you start getting the bills. They just come months, you know, months later, but one after another, and they're, they're piling up thousands of, of dollars you weren't expecting to pay, and you can't pay, and you're wondering, how are we going to pay? You just feel that stress, that anxiety, that worry. It's trouble. And if all you do each night is think about your bills and focus on the trouble, and, and that, that's, all you, that's all you think about, you're just going to sink deeper into that hole and feel like there's no way out. That trial is going to feel too big for you. But it's not. You're forgetting God down there in your hole that he's, he's bigger, he's greater than a few medical bills. You know, if you put your thumb in front of your eye, it can appear bigger than the sun. But your, your thumb is not bigger than the sun. It's just a perspective issue. That if you focus too closely, small things can appear larger than they are. They get blown out of proportion. And for a lot of you, maybe with your trials and troubles, you just have the wrong perspective. That God is greater than than any problem you have. And he delights in delivering his people. If God is far away from you, he's going to appear small and aloof. But that's, that's not by his doing. Rather, perhaps in your sin, you've distanced yourself from God so that now he, he feels far away. But I trust you, you know the solution. You need to draw near to God. And he will draw near to you and show to you how big he is, that he's bigger and you and all your problems put together. He has good purposes. He he just wants you to depend on him. I hope you realize that. You need to take your eyes off of your Goliath, whatever it is, and and remember God. And specifically, remember, as David does in verse 3, God's character. He says, God is a shield about me. You might be picturing a, a small little handheld shield or a buckler, but David says actually here, a shield round about. The picture is a bubble of protection. That God is a shield above and below, left and right, just all around. But notice the contrast with verse 6 that David's enemies were deployed where? Round about. He was surrounded by enemies, but he didn't fear because God was a shield round about. He's surrounded by God. There's no holes, there's no weak spots. There's no blind spots when God shields his people. God is also David's glory. You know, at this point, David had lost all of his kingly glory, his riches, the palace, his his royal garb, everything, all of his splendor was gone. He had to leave it all behind when he fled Jerusalem. And eventually that's going to happen to us. All of our glory, our riches, our possessions, our accomplishments, they'll all one day be lost and forgotten. But David still had glory because he still had God God was his treasure his glory and God was still with him and then he says lastly God is the one who lifts my head you know a sunken and covered head it was and still is a, a common way to express grief and shame and humiliation in fact listen to this description of David leaving Jerusalem on his way up the Mount of Olives fleeing Absalom we didn't read it but 2 Samuel 15:30 says And David went up the Mount of Olives and wept as he went and his head was covered and he walked barefoot. I have to think that's what David was thinking of when he writes that God is the lifter of my head. He remembers the time when his head was hung low, but God is the lifter of heads. He he raises up the poor and the needy. God has a way to to humble the pride or the proud rather, uh, but yet to exalt the humble. David remembered this, and after humbling himself, he just completely placed his trust in God, and that was enough. The point is, God was his only hope, his only refuge, his only strength. And so it goes for us. These are the the types of truths you need to be remembering and and filling your mind with when you go through trials, as opposed to focusing on the trial. Accordingly, David next seeks divine aid in verse 4, he cries out to God with a vocal prayer, not a silent prayer. His enemies were using their voices against him. So he was going to use his voice, not not to fight fire with fire, but, but to pray and to cry out to God. And, and God answered. We don't get the impression that, that David heard an audible response from God, but rather in banking on God's character and promises. David knew his promi- his prayers were heard because God is pleased when we trust him. And pray to him. We place ourselves in his hands. And therefore David rests. He says, Salah, pause, rest, reflect here in prayer. You know, when you are in trouble, you are to cry out to God. That's that's really the answer. It's as simple as that. It's not so much a secret. It's just, will you do it? The secret to the type of peace that David had in his trial is this utter abandon of self like i'm going to fix this i'm going to get myself out of this but a complete dependence and confidence in god he he's going to have to do this one he's going to have to deliver one way or another but if you if you come to this point where you can truly place your trust in the lord you're going to find peace and rest and so verse 5 of psalm 3 david reflects I lay down and slept and I woke for the Lord sustains me. And here here is that secret to good night's sleep. It's just complete trust in God. That's all you got to do. Just give yourself over to this total, complete trust in God and and you should be able to sleep easy. God's your, your confidence, your hope. Again, why can't you sleep? Usually because your mind is racing Usually when you're going through trouble, won't let your body rest, you're up thinking about you know the what ifs. you're trying to plot your way out of this trouble or maybe you're grieving over some of your misdeeds. But most of the time that the circumstances of your trials are beyond your control, which means all these thoughts are they're actually futile. Instead though, just just trust God. fill your mind with divine truth and equip yourself with an eternal perspective, Namely that, you know, your trials may appear large, but you know, in the scope of eternity, they're, they're really small. They come and they go. You know, God is still good. It may not end well for you here on earth. There's no promise of that. Your trial may, may take you or a loved one. But it will end well for you in heaven if you are trusting Christ for salvation. That's what gives us this greater peace, knowing that we can say, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, we can still say, it is it's well with my soul. If put off anxiety, put on that trustful prayer. I know you guys know this lesson because we, we preached on it, Philippians 4, 6 and 7. You know it well, right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, that your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You might be thinking this whole sermon like, "Yeah, we, we've heard all this before, right? We just learned that back in Philippians 4. And it's true, we've, we've learned this lesson several times over. But you don't get to write this lesson off as trite unless you've mastered all fear and anxiety in life. Have you done that? Have you mastered all anxiety and, and feelings of unrest. If you have it, good for you. Amen. Praise God for your sanctification. But I would still tell you to take heed because I, I believe we cannot hear too many reminders of the place of peace in midst trials. This is the way. David shows us the way. And so he says in verse 6 now, I will not be afraid of 10,000s of people who have set themselves against me roundabout. You know, 2 Samuel confirms that, that literally tens of thousands were, were gathered against David in the wilderness. David may originally have wrote this psalm that night before the final battle. Though heavily outnumbered, there was going to be this final battle that would decide the rebellion. Who's going to be king, Absalom or David? The night before, though, David took his small band of warriors, divided them up into three groups, sent them out to meet Israel's army on the battlefield the next day. But David himself, that night, went to bed. He just slept. And he slept easy. Having prayed, he knew God was with him. He was just in God's hands. Nothing he could do. Just go to bed. That's what he did. This, though, is the right response to all of our trials and adversity in whatever form. The question is, will it be your response? God wants you to sleep easy. Do you know that? God is glorified when we get a really good night's sleep. Do you know why that is? Because it, it shows you trust him. Right? Think about sleep. When we sleep, we're at our most vulnerable. Like you're literally unconscious and you're, you're vulnerable to all sorts of dangers and attacks from theft to fire to wild animals like spiders and snakes could crawl in your bed. Right? if all you do is think about all the bad things that could happen to you while you sleep, you're never going to sleep, right? There's like a million bad things that could happen while you're asleep. Yeah, you're welcome. But I trust you know it's it's no way to live. That that anxiety, that fear, is paralyzing. The better way is simply to accept all danger, and know that the God is greater. God is good. He's in control. Recall the countless times you've gone to sleep and nothing's happened. That God has been good to you so far. And remember that even if today's your day, even if tonight's your night, he's still going to deliver you into his everlasting kingdom. These are the thoughts that need to fill your mind through prayer. As you go to bed each night and wake up each morning, and if you do so, you're going to find yourself, I trust, sleeping a lot easier. You know, just this past week, some good friends of ours from L.A., had a one-year-old daughter went into children's hospital with pneumonia and it got worse and worse and she was right on the edge of passing away not making it through hooked up to all these things talk about a trial and it could have been the end no promises that she was going to survive we don't have any promise in the word that says that that every one-year-old will make it through we don't have that promise but god was the rock and through their prayer and our prayer and lots of prayer they were encouraged. They were strengthened to, to sleep despite, I mean, how, how can you sleep when you're in the room with your child? But they, they did. They were depending on God alone. And, and thankfully, this time in the end, God delivered them both, delivered the child. We actually had a second friend who had a child went in. Both of them were, were spared. But understand, times like these, they're meant to stretch our faith and to build our faith as we pray. And God is delighted when we do so. And he's delighted to show how big he is in the times when we are so afraid. Now, speaking of prayer, the actual prayer of David comes in the final stanza. So we can finish up now with with this, David's prayer. Number three, David's prayer from verses seven and eight. David says in the end, arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You've shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. Confidence in salvation doesn't stop David from from praying for earthly deliverance. And that's, that's a good thing. It's not wrong to pray for deliverance from whatever trial or trouble you're going through. Of course. All the more so in faith. You cry out for that healing. For that reconciliation. For that. Restoration, to overcome whatever it is you're going through. God simply wants us to call on his name when we are in need. It shows we, we trust him. In fact, when David says here, Arise, O Lord, in verse 7, his words hearken back to the battle cry that went out. Anytime the ark went into battle, the Ark of the Covenant. It's like in Numbers ten thirty five. It says, Then it came about when the ark set out, that Moses said, Rise up, O Lord. And let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. You see, God is pleased when we invoke his name at, when we, as we face our battles. He wants us to call on him, because again, it's it's this pure expression of faith that he's he's your only hope. And David goes on to recall God's deliverance. He says, For you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek, you've shattered the teeth of the wicked. You have some some stark images evoking conquest and vanquishing an enemy. But in addition, though, God won the victory. And the pictures David uses here in verse 7, they really show that, you know, you have all these enemies. What were they doing? What were they saying? There's no deliverance in God. That was their slander from their mouth. But when God rose up, they're now silent. Their teeth are shattered. Their cheeks are struck. They they can't say anything. It evokes an image of speechlessness. When God raises up, the enemy goes silent. There's nothing more they can say when God rises up to deliver his people. In fact, this word, verse 8, for salvation, that's actually the same word used in verse 2 for deliverance. The word is Yeshua, means salvation. The enemies, remember back in verse 2, they're saying there's no deliverance. There's no salvation in God. But in verse 8, David knows and confesses that salvation is... It it straight up belongs to the Lord. There is, in fact, salvation in no one else but God, God alone. Historically, that's what happened. To finish the story, Absalom entered Jerusalem. He took control of the city. He then banded together all of Israel's armies to go and track down David in the wilderness to finish this thing off and to kill his father. But he never stood a chance because God had not forsaken David and God was going to magnify his name this time by delivering David. And so David's small band completely routed Israel's armies, 20,000 fell in that day among Israel. But Absalom himself was killed in battle. The rebellion was crushed, and in the end David was restored as the rightful king of Israel. You know, the bloodshed in David's household, it is tragic for sure. When you think about it, David really lost three sons in connection to his sin with Bathsheba. The the child, uh, Amnon and Absalom, all died in connection with his sin. But God was still where his hope was found. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And this is how God ultimately blesses his people. He sovereignly works to deliver us from death itself. You know, just in closing reflection now, Psalm 3 It is not a Messianic psalm per se. Throughout church history, there have been some who have interpreted this Christologically, meaning they see Christ everywhere here. At the very least, I think it's safe to see some fitting illustrations and pictures of Christ in David's experience, because we do know, after all, that David sure was a type of Christ in the Old Testament. So just by way of reflection now, just, just think that, you know, like David, it is true that Christ was similarly betrayed by his own people, Israel. His enemies turned on him and they increased more and more. Jesus likewise left Jerusalem in shame with his head bowed down as he ascended the Mount of Olives with a small band of followers. In fact, all the forces of darkness were deployed against Jesus, surrounding him round about during that time of trial. Though many would go on to say of Jesus that God had abandoned him, though, by his very name, Jesus, Yeshua, he knew that salvation, deliverance, belongs to the Lord. And so Christ, remember, exhibited the same response, meaning he cried out to God, his only hope. In the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives, Jesus prayed in a very similar way to how David is praying here simply casting himself and all of his cares on God, seeking deliverance, seeking aid, seeking strength. And as a result, God sustained him. As you know, God did not deliver Jesus from his trial. He still had to go to the cross. There there would be no way around that. But God strengthened him and gave him peace and gave him rest. In fact, it would be through this trial that God would silence all of his enemies, Then and thereafter, that through Christ's suffering, God was going to even silence death itself. Understand, though, for that to happen, one more son of David had to die. However, this son of David died not just for David's sins, but for all of our sins. This is how, this is why salvation belongs to the Lord. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. You know, we now get the benefit of living after the cross. We can look back now and we can see the ultimate example of deliverance, of salvation from trouble. You know, our real trouble in life, the ultimate trouble is death. That We're all going to die. And then there's a second death, an eternal death of judgment. That's our real enemy, death itself. But Christ has come. The, the great son of David has come. And he, he too is greater. He actually paid death's debt on the cross. And rising from the dead, he vanquished death itself. Now Jesus gives life and life eternal to his people, to those who, who follow him, who trust him, who make him their confidence and hope. And that's not just faith, that's saving faith. Faith like David had. Is this complete confidence in Christ alone to save you. And this morning, as we reflect on this passage, just make sure that's you. That you've learned the greater lesson. You're part of the greater deliverance of all trials. And it's found in Christ. You know, maybe you're a person who wakes up every morning flooded with fears. Or you go to bed every night anxious. You never truly rest. Well, this may be your problem, but this surely is your answer. You need to know God. You know, as the old plan word goes, No God, no peace, no God, no peace. Get it? You know, no God, K N O W. No God, no peace. But no God, no, no God, no peace. Trials and troubles, they're still real. But you need to set your sights, take your sights off of your trouble and put them on Christ. He's already won the victory, the greatest victory over sin, Satan, and even death itself. And so believe in him and then cry out to him. He will sustain you with the same power from which he rose from the dead. He'll sustain you, strengthen you, give you that night of sleep and rest. This is the way, the way of peace. David knew it in his Lord, who is salvation. We know even more that the God who is salvation sent his son, Yeshua, to be our salvation, our peace, our rest. So you must go to him daily in prayer, in faith, and the Prince of Peace will give you his peace. Like he promised, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That sounds nice. It's what you want. If you want David's peace and David's rest, well, then you need to learn the lesson of knowing and going to David's God and David's Lord. Make sure that is you. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Father in heaven, we thank you that you are our Father and that we are your children by faith, by adoption in Christ, that as we have confessed our sins and repented and placed our total trust and hope in Christ alone, you've brought us into that everlasting kingdom, the kingdom of David. You've made us your own children by adoption, but children nonetheless permanent in your favor. We thank you for this, Lord, and now I pray we we understand what it means to call you our Father, that you are with us and you're for us, not against. You will never abandon or forsaken us, Lord. We know that because of the one who was, in a way, forsaken on the cross, Christ, whom you sent your own Son, the God-man, to die on that cross, to bear the full penalty of sin, to, in a manner of speaking, be forsaken uh, of your loving kindness, to know your wrath, that we could share in the love of God in this adoption. Lord, we remember the high price paid to grant us life and life eternal and help us to not think of our trials as bigger. Many in here, I'm sure, they're sick, they're suffering, their loved ones are sick and suffering. There's trials, there's troubles. It's never ending. It's a fallen world. We could be tempted to think our trials are too big. But Christ is bigger and his death was greater. He's conquered sin, Satan, death itself. We have nothing really to fear. We're safe in him. Encourage us with these truths. Give us this eternal and heavenly perspective that we may overcome, that we may simply trust you and keep going, praying and resting easy. This Lord shows you our faith. We really do trust you. So give us sleep, a good night's rest as we reveal that you're our only hope, our only deliverer. Salvation is in no one else. And so we thank you and praise you for this and trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.